Lily Flag Signal, Episode 8, Milling Around, Part 2, The Villages. Welcome to the last episode of Season 1. There'll be one more very special Lily Flag Signal show coming out this year, in mid-December, then we'll be silent on the podcast posting front, but still active on social media, don't worry, until January when Season 2 picks up. I grew up in a house built by my parents, meaning that I knew everyone who had ever lived in the home, all three of us. I think that's part of why historic neighborhoods fascinate me so much, the number of stories those walls could tell and the various people that have walked those floors. Some of the buildings in today's episodes are no longer standing, some are still occupied and used for their original purpose, and some others have been so repurposed that, as one listener pointed out over the show Instagram, the original occupants would be incredibly surprised to see us going there now for fun. But how did these mill buildings end up at Huntsville after all, and who funded them? What was life like in the mill villages, and what did they have to offer? It turns out that answering these questions means reading about lots of guys they named roads after, the beauty of electric streetcars, and century-old toilets. So, let's get started. Hello and welcome to Lily Flag Signal. A Huntsville history podcast where your host just really likes old buildings, okay? If you missed part one of just milling around, no worries. You can listen to it after this episode. The first part covered child labor laws and how photos of Huntsville's mill children were used to gain sympathy for the cause. Today, though, we'll be talking about the genesis of big mills in Huntsville, life in the mill villages, and an intro to conflicts and interactions between mill workers and the rest of Huntsville society. I'd love to tell you about the population breakdown in Huntsville in 1890, but... Nearly all of the 1890 census data for the United States is gone forever, destroyed in a fire in 1921. What I do know, though, is that there are around 5,000 residents, and city leadership was interested in that growing. A combination of local leaders and outside investors joined up in 1886, a year before Alabama's first attempt at child labor law, to start the North Alabama Improvement Company, a group aimed at starting and attracting large businesses in the area. The first president of the company was a man from New York named Michael O'Shaughnessy, He also is the one responsible for building the Kildare Mansion in North Huntsville, which, one, will be heavily featured in a season two episode, two, is like a thousand feet from Lincoln Mill, and three, was built so that he could have a part-time residence in town while overseeing the construction of his various projects. Michael O'Shaughnessy, along with his brother James, weren't new to the concept of coming to a city, starting businesses, and then moving on. As Linda Bayer put it, quote, It was through the O'Shaughnessy's influence that additional wealthy outsiders were attracted to Huntsville as a town with great development potential. It was this group of northern investors and self-styled town builders associated with prominent local businessmen that provided the money, the connections, and the know-how to package and sell Huntsville as an industrial and resort site, end quote. There were numerous Huntsville businessmen involved in the investment company as well, and many of them have streets in Huntsville named for them. Dement, Halsey, Risen, Stevens, Humes, McCullough. The efforts to attract outside businessmen had worked, and Trevanian Barlow Dallas, manager and vice president of the Nashville Cotton Mills, was interested. There's already a small but growing cotton mill in town, but it couldn't match what Dallas Mill was to become. There was an announcement in the Huntsville Weekly Democrat in December of 1890 that, quote, The Dallas Cotton Mill site is in East Huntsville, opposite Judge W.H. Moore's place. Work will begin on it in January and pushed right through. The machinery has been ordered. End quote. Imagine if newspapers nowadays gave business locations just based on their proximity to citizens' homes. Anyway, Dallas Mill was huge. It was five stories tall and approximately 650 feet by 110 feet. To give you a mental picture of the length, that's about two football fields, or one and a half Saturn Vs. When it was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1978, the architect reviewing the submission wrote, Architecturally, this represents an almost typical mill of the cotton belt. 
However, the great horizontal length makes it unique, end quote. Something Dallas, as well as most other mills had, was large windows. These were great for letting in sunlight for visibility as well as ventilation. The windows were designed such that some rows of panes could tilt open without, quote, blocking aisle traffic and can be left open even in a hard rain without unduly wetting the aisle floor, end quote. That's from the National Register nomination form. However, some worker accounts said that some mills' windows were rarely if ever open, and shifts lasted longer than daylight hours, so the workers had to rely on dim oil lights the first years of mill operation. Also from that nomination form comes info about another interesting feature to Dallas Mill in its basement, a large well that connected into one of the feeder channels for downtown's Big Spring. Of course, as much as I love Dallas Mill Deli, I've never seen Dallas Mill in person, despite living almost my entire life in Huntsville, because it burned in July of 1991. One of the firefighters who responded to the incident said that the fire was so large that they just didn't have enough manpower or water to save the building. The mill's water tower still stands, though, approximately at the corner of Stevens Avenue and Dallas Street. You can still see it from I-565 just east of downtown, and it's so close to the still-standing Lincoln Mill that when I was a child, I just assumed that the Dallas Mill label went with the building that I now know is Lincoln Mill. However, Dallas Mill and its water tower were east of the railroad tracks, while Lincoln, which went through a few name changes, is on the west side of the tracks. But I'll get to them in a sec, since I'm trying to go chronologically here. Tracy Pratt, a native Minnesotan and now of Pratt Avenue fame, gets a lot of credit for Huntsville's growing mill scene. In 1899, the Mercury said, quote, of course, a number of progressive citizens have assisted in bringing the Merrimack cotton mills to Huntsville, but the credit due Tracy W. Pratt is inestimable. The idea originated in his active brain, and no amount of physical or mental labor has deterred him from following the advantage of straightforward presentation of facts secured at the very inception of the undertaking. End quote. You see, Pratt owned West Huntsville Cotton Mill, which opened in 1892. I hadn't really heard of this one, other than seeing it listed on the old Sanborn maps, and I'm guessing that's because it really doesn't have a catchy name. Like, West Huntsville Cotton Mill Deli isn't exactly a place I'd be psyched to eat at. More importantly, Pratt is also the one who convinced the Massachusetts-based Merrimack Manufacturing Company to choose Huntsville as their southern location, with a little difficulty. Pratt invited company representatives to come into town and see the proposed site for the mill, but there was such a horrible rainstorm before they visited that all the representatives got to see was a lake where the mill was supposed to go. According to an article by Sarah Huff Fisks and Deborah Jenkins, Pratt ended up getting signed statements from the mayor, a judge, and a priest saying that the land had never flooded that badly in the history of the city, then took those to Boston to convince the Merrimack leadership to give Huntsville another try. And it worked. Construction on Merrimack began in 1899, and it opened July of the next year. Pratt did his thing again in 1900 by convincing Arthur Lowe, another Massachusetts-based investor, to open a mill in Huntsville by 1901. It will probably not surprise you to hear that Arthur Lowe's mill was called Lowe Mill. This one is still standing and in use as a wonderful arts and entertainment venue now. Also in 1900 came Madison Spinning Company, later renamed Abingdon Mill in 1906, later renamed Lincoln in 1918. It's this iteration that was owned almost entirely by a man from Massachusetts named William Lincoln Barrel. He understood the importance of naming things after oneself, it seems. The last of the mills we'll be talking about today, another smaller one that often gets forgotten it seems, is the Rowe Knitting Company. Rowe spelled R-O-W-E, so like one letter off from low, L-O-W-E. Great. It was owned by New Yorkers, who were also attracted to the area by Pratt, and the mill was renamed the Huntsville Knitting Company and then Helen Mills in 1908 and 1928, respectively. I mentioned earlier that Kildare Mansion was built originally for Michael O'Shaughnessy to occupy part-time while the North Alabama Improvement Company got going, but this wasn't the only new home constructed as part of this growth in the 1880s and 1890s, of course. For one, James O'Shaughnessy had an equally impressive-looking mansion to Kildare, but it burned down, was never rebuilt, and is kind of forgotten now. 
More relevant to today's discussion, though, are the mill villages that were built up around these industrial centers and housed thousands of employees and their families. I feel like, as someone from a population 800 town, I cannot overstate how massive these villages were. In an 1919 fact sheet, the Huntsville-Madison County Chamber of Commerce claimed that there were 3,320 people working in the mills and that a total of 8,300 people were supported by the mills. It would have been rare for any of these people to not be living in the mill villages adjacent to their mill of employment. At their peak, Huntsville had four separate mill villages, one each for Merrimack, Dallas, and Lincoln, then a West Huntsville mill village for employees of Lowe, the Knitting Mill, and the West Huntsville Mill. The idea behind mill villages was that employees needed somewhere to live, and that it would be easier to attract workers if housing was provided near the place they'd be working. So that's what they did. The North Alabama Improvement Company, which I mentioned earlier as being responsible for getting investors interested in helping Huntsville grow, ended up dissolving in 1892, around when Dallas Mills started operations. They sold their property to a group from South Dakota, of all places, named the Northwest Land Association, a group led by William Wells. Hey look, another street name. This group, which also included Pratt and Wellman, was responsible for platting out much of the neighborhood in northeast Huntsville. If you've ever driven through the Five Points intersection northeast of downtown and wondered why it doesn't line up with the street grid established in downtown, that's because downtown streets line up with the Big Spring, whereas the designers of the Northwest Land Association's East Huntsville edition, as it was called, run north to south and east to west. This edition was almost 300 acres, subdivided into smaller lots and either sold for individuals to build upon or built up by members of the land association and then sold, or rented. This includes what we now know as the eastern edge of Old Town, all of Five Points and a little beyond, and Dallas Mill Village. The first Sanborn map to show the streets is from 1901. Looking at the 1908 Sanborn map of Five Points, as well as of West Huntsville, there are a few unique buildings, but it's mostly duplex, 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 duplex. You can see these homes in the background of the photos by Lewis Hine of Child Mill Workers. I went more in depth on those in part one of Milling Around. To give you a sense of scale, when the Merrimack Mill Village was completed in the mid-1920s, it had 279 units, almost all of which were duplexes. They're odd to look at in a map or old photos, as the symmetry is almost eerie. As for life inside these homes, I found an interview in an old Huntsville Historical Review by Susanna Lieberman with Pete Hunt, who described life in the Dallas Mill Village. Quote, the people that lived in the village depended on that mill for living. The mill owned the house, they kept it up. They would come out and do repairs if you needed a pipe changed in the house or anything. All you had to do was turn it into the office, and then they sent a crew out and worked on it. They had crews for wood, they had their own plumber, their own electrician, they had their own fire truck, end quote. He also described the bathrooms, which were in outbuildings. I didn't realize how curious I was about the Mill Village bathrooms until I read about the Mill Village bathrooms. Hunt said, quote, When you sat down on the wooden stool, the water would start running, because it came from above it. The water ran the whole time you sat on it, and just as soon as you got through and got up, the lid went up and cut the water off. I mean to tell you, we had it nice, end quote. In another part of the interview, he talked about a horrific mill accident at Dallas that severely injured his friend. I'm not going to describe it here, but it did make me question how nice they had it, running water toilets or no. In another Susanna Lieberman interview, Harold Gill, a man who grew up in Huntsville Mill Village, said his father worked at Low Mill. He said of the houses, quote, Most folks had an icebox. Some walls were painted and some used wallpaper. Some of them had big wide paper. Some had painted paper. It wasn't sheetrock. They had beaded board. It was a thin board about three inches wide that meshed or interlocked together. There was no insulation and just drop siding on the outside of the houses, so they were not very well insulated. There was a fireplace in the living room and a stove in the kitchen, and that was all the heat for the house. End quote. He also mentions that many mill workers owned cows, which they kept in outbuildings on their properties. You can still see some of these in the Sanborn maps from time. 
Another thing that shows up on the Sanborn maps are rail lines. If you're familiar with Tennessee Ernie Ford's song, 16 Tons, you're familiar with the idea of a company store. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I will not be offended if you pause this show to go listen to it. It's a good song. Anyhow, the idea behind company stores is that the company owns the place where you work, also provides a shop that employees can purchase dry goods or other necessities from. For example, Merrimack's store was leased to William Halsey, who also owned the Halsey Grocery on the other side of town. In West Huntsville, there were multiple stores. In his aforementioned interview, Harold Gill talked about his time working for one of the stores in West Huntsville. At age 10, he was driving a Model A truck around the village and delivering cow feed and grocery orders. When you work for, rent from, and buy your food from the same business, things can potentially get dicey pretty quickly in terms of money. In the case of company stores in remote mining towns, for example, there weren't other shopping options available for employees, meaning they could end up in debt to their employers. In Huntsville, these mill villages weren't so isolated because they were outside of city limits, but still within reach via public transportation. Starting in 1900, Huntsville had an electric streetcar system, something that continued for decades but is unfortunately gone now. I found a map for the streetcar system, and it included a connection between Merrimack and downtown by way of Triana and then Clinton, as well as Dallas Mill and downtown by way of Russell and Holmes. This allowed people living in the mill villages to go into town and, apparently, for curious visitors from downtown to come in and sightsee at the mill villages. There were lots of community events in the mill villages, including dances, Boy Scout troop meetings, art fairs, and baseball. Despite the long hours worked in the mills, it sounds like playing and watching baseball was something that really got everyone together. In Harold Gill's interview, he said that people from one mill village didn't often visit with people in the other villages, since they were sort of their own little communities, but baseball appears to be the exception, with Lincoln, Dallas, and Merrimack having teams. Pete Hunt said the following with regard to rivalries between mill villages. Keep in mind that he was living in Dallas Mill Village, directly east of Lincoln. Quote, Lincoln was right across the railroad tracks, which us kids growing up used to get on that railroad track and throw rocks at Lincoln, or they got on the throw of the dust. That's the way it worked in the village. End quote. And, quote, the men from Dallas had a ball team, Lincoln had a ball team, Merrimack had a ball team. Well, every weekend during ball season, one would go play the other. When we would go across the railroad track over to the ballpark on Lincoln, they didn't fight us, and we wouldn't fight them as long as we were going to the ball game. But if there was no ball game, we could throw rocks at each other. End quote. Another part of the mill villages was the school. I'm not going to rehash compulsory education laws, that's part one. But what it's important to know is that by 1917, there was at least some requirement that children attend school a set amount of time. The usual practice in town, with three of the four mill schools I'll be discussing doing it this way, is for the mill to sponsor or pay for the school, then Madison County School System oversaw the day-to-day operations. In writing the episode scripts, I kept finding positive recollections from mill workers regarding Joseph Bradley, the agent for Merrimack Mill and the man for whom that mill's school is named. He was responsible for beginning a mill workers-only hospital to alleviate overcrowding at Huntsville Hospital and starting beautification projects and gardening programs for the Merrimack Village. The 1927 Bradleyan, the yearbook from the Bradley School, is actually available from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. In it, there's the following note written by the graduating class of eight students. Quote, Many years ago, when the seniors of 27 first entered school, it was to a small building on B Street in Merrimack. Here we spent some very happy years studying and playing together. Our enrollment kept increasing until everyone saw the need of a new building. In 1914, when vacation was over, we had a new grammar school on Triana Pike. Here we studied and climbed, trying to get ahead until Mr. Bradley Sr. saw our efforts and built a new addition to our school in 1919, which was called the Joseph J. Bradley School. End quote. The math on this is interesting to me, as you'd expect someone finishing their senior year to have spent 12 years in school, meaning the class of 1927 would have started school in 1914. So like 1914 to 1915 would be their first school year. However, that quote from the yearbook states that many of the students were already in school prior to the 1914 move to the new building. 
My guess is that they may have attended sporadically in their early years, then once attendance became mandatory, they got on a more regular schedule. I do know that this class of 1927 says that they are the first graduating seniors of Joe Bradley, meaning that as they advanced each year, a grade had to be added to the school. Joe Bradley's school at Merrimack wasn't the only school built in a mill village. Dallas Mill had Risen School on the corner of what's now Oakwood and Andrew Jackson, named for Archie Risen, a general manager at the mill. It appears his father was probably William Risen, one of the original members of that North Alabama Improvement Company that was so heavily involved in bringing about Dallas Mill to begin with. Even with schools, it seems, it's not always what you know, but who you know. Lincoln Mill School was, shockingly, also called Lincoln. It was built in 1929 on Meridian Street, a decade after the compulsory education laws went into effect. The cool thing about the Lincoln School is that it's not only still standing, so you can see it in all its art deco glory, but it appears to still be in use as an educational facility. And that just leaves West Huntsville, a village comprised of workers from Low Mill, Rowe Knitting Mill, and West Huntsville Mill, as well as Irwin Manufacturing. There was only a span of a few years that all four of these were open, and the names changed throughout their operation, but the employees all lived in the same general neighborhood outside of Huntsville city limits. Supposedly, no one of the mills wanted to be responsible for building a school, so philanthropists stepped in, including Mary Virginia McCormick. I mention her specifically because, remember the fancy house O'Shaughnessy built, Kildare Mansion? In 1900, she purchased it, and she spent the next few decades donating money to various local causes, including trying to improve the lives of kids in the mill villages. In part one of these episodes on mills, I talked about child labor laws and compulsory education laws in Alabama, and I made mention of Dr. B.J. Baldwin, the chairman of the Alabama Child Labor Committee in 1911, who said that the early attempt at child labor protections from 1887 was repealed in 1894, quote, through the efforts of a lobby sent to Montgomery by the cotton mills, headed by the superintendent of one of the New England mills which had lately been established in the state, end quote. I mention that in part because it's important to remember that in many cases, the people who owned and profited from these mills weren't from or even in Huntsville. These weren't necessarily their neighbors or their community members' kids putting long hours in working. I don't know for certain which people or mill Baldwin was talking about, but it's definitely true that the mills weren't owned primarily by Huntsvillians. With regard to Dallas Mill, for example, in 1899, only about 7% of the stock was owned by local investors. Merrimack was a company based out of Massachusetts. Lowe was from Massachusetts, and starting in 1918, Lincoln was owned by a man from Massachusetts. People in Huntsville were aware that the mills were owned by outsiders, but they brought in money. In 1902, for example, the journal makes reference to the fact that, quote, wealthy New England capitalists have closed a deal for the location of another large cotton mill in Huntsville during the present year, end quote. But what did people outside the mill villages think of the families who lived in them? These villages were very much their own communities, but there was a lot more to Huntsville than the mill villages. Outsiders, from what I can gather, sometimes had a sense of superiority over the mill workers. I found a few references to these mill employees being called lintheads, which was not a compliment. This isn't just a local to Huntsville phenomenon either. So, it used to be somewhat common practice to run snippets of stories, serials, in newspapers, magazines, or other regularly scheduled publications, with the next chapter coming out each edition. This was a way that relative unknowns got their writing out there, and Charles Dickens and Robert Louis Stevenson's got their starts this way. In 1936, the Huntsville Times featured chapters from The World with a Fence, a serialized novel about a millworker's son who marries a rich girl in his school who's the daughter of a, quote, big merchant, end quote. In this story, the main character is repeatedly called a linthead by the narrator and is asked by his father-in-law to stop associating with his millworker family because it will, quote, be less embarrassing, end quote. Seeing as how the author, Marion Sims, is from Georgia and lived in North Carolina at the time of writing, it shows this is more than just Huntsville terminology. Also, after reading a chapter two for my research, I'm kind of curious how the story ends, so I guess the serial thing works. 
More importantly, though, this showcases how people thought of this class divide between mill workers and business owners, or those with other city jobs. The whole white collar versus blue collar thing isn't new, and this serialized novel is obviously a work of fiction, but the way Sims' characters discuss knowing where they belong, her terminology, not mine, is pretty telling regarding how mill workers were viewed by the general public. This isn't to say that everyone in town was hateful towards families living in mill villages, and it seems like they were at times treated as charity cases to be pitied, such as when it came to funding a school, like I mentioned earlier. In Patricia Ryan's Northern Dollars for Huntsville Spindles, she says of mill workers taking the streetcar that, quote, their welcome in the downtown area was somewhat questionable, end quote. This class divide and occasional disdain didn't stop other Huntsvillians from buying products from the mills, of course. Just because people looked down on the so-called lintheads didn't mean that they weren't going to pass up good prices on items from the mills. I found multiple advertisements from the time period in which local stores were selling goods from the mills, including one from the Huntsville Times in 1926 by S.L. Terry & Son, offering multiple colors and sizes of Dallas Mill sheeting, as well as gingham fabric from Low Mill. Huntsville's industry and draw have certainly changed in the past century, and honestly, I'm fascinated by the comparisons and contrasts. Oh, and what I wouldn't give for a comeback of Huntsville's streetcar system. So that's season one. Wow, it feels like I just started these podcasts last week, but it's been more than two months since that first show, Russell Erskine and the Birdman, came out. This has been such a great experience for me, both with the history I've learned and all the people I've gotten to meet because of the podcast. Special thanks to all the friends who've supported me since that very first, hey, what if I started a podcast message over the summer? Putting your voice on the internet can be intimidating, and honestly, I spend a minimum of like 15 hours a week on research and writing these shows, so it means a lot to have supportive listeners. Speaking of, and you know I hate asking this, it'd be really helpful if you got on your podcasting service of choice and left a rating or review or whatever. If that's not your style, and I totally get it if not, just recommending the show to other people in town is also a fantastic way to help Lily Flag signal grow. It's not that I'm trying to be some sort of like local history influencer or anything like that, and I'm certainly not making any money off the show, but the more people who've heard of this, the more likely I am to be able to get interviews with subject matter experts or tours of places that'll be featured in future episodes. Street cred, if you will. Season 2 will start back the second half of January 2023, and it'll coincide with a fun new project and feature that I'll announce soon. Speaking of, in the time between seasons, you can still follow along with the show, see behind-the-scenes research, and get episode teasers over on the show's Instagram page at lilyflagpodcast. It's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast. Two Gs in flag. I know this is cliche, but there's a lot of cool stuff coming up, and I'm really excited to get to share it with you. So until the next episode, dream of streetcars, be thankful for toilets, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon.